Hi, friends, and welcome to Outward, Slate's podcast about the LGBTs and the people who love them or tolerate them <laughs> or secretly hate them but are still obsessed with them. <laughs> I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate, and um, I don't know if you guys knew this, but it's my time. Some <laughs> queers might call it Sagittarius season, but uh, I call it me time. Welcome to my season. Oh my gosh, Christina, I'm so glad to be in, an honor to be in your season. I am Brian Lauder, an editor at Slate. Here, here. It's what a great season because it leads into Jewel season, um, which is in <laughs> December. Um, back to so, back. Back to back. Oh, I can't wait. Speaking of, I'm I'm Jules Gill-Peterson, also um, a renowned, mysterious, and sexy lesbian at the State Department. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people are saying. That's what people are saying. Uh, I can't wait to hear your take on uh, what we're going to talk about today. So before we get into today's show, I want to remind our listeners that We've been in the process of expanding the show to give you a new episode just about every week. So in addition to the main monthly episode like this one, which will be a touch shorter than it was in the olden days, you'll get a few other mini episodes to snack on for the rest of the month. And we'll be hosting some of them. We're also bringing in some new queer friends into the mix. It's really exciting for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope our listeners are enjoying more of Outward, more of the time. On today's show, we're going to be talking about fellow travelers, uh, steamy and historically accurate, question mark, mm. gay miniseries now airing on Showtime. It's a gripping drama that hops between multiple gay eras from McCarthyism and the Lavender Scare to the AIDS crisis. There's quite a bit of gay sex in it, which <laughs> I'm confident we will touch on in our segment. Mm -hmm. And along with that, we will have our Prides and Provocations and a few monthly additions to your gay agenda. But first, Brian, if I'm not mistaken, you have a special holiday request for our listeners? I do. I have something on my, my Christmas list for our listeners that I'd love for them to, to help us with. So we want to put together a little episode for later in the year, sort of holiday themed, but you know, so often I feel like we in sort of queer land talk about the holidays as sort of like a difficult time, or like, you know, it's hard to go home, or we have drama with family, all that kind of thing. This year, we wanted to do something perhaps a little lighter, a little more fun. This is an idea that came from our colleague, Danny Lavery, who I believe you've heard on the feed recently as well. So we're going to do sort of a discussion question topic. Right. And the question is, what is the weirdest, awkwardest, sort of funniest thing that your family has said to you about your gender, your gender identity, your gender presentation, perhaps how they view it? We're looking for more of maybe like a lighthearted sort of take on this. Um, obviously, some families have said horrible things. Uh, <laughs> we're not maybe looking for that this time, but more sort of just the, the like the thing where you're like, what? mom like what, like what was that uh so we'll be sharing ours on that uh episode but we also were hoping to hear from some of our listeners about again the, the sort of weird funny things that that our loved ones have said to us about how they understand or don't understand our gender identities and presentations so please you know if you have thoughts on that or stories send them to our podcast at slate.com uh voice memos definitely for this we want to hear we want to put together like a a montage of all of your voices and please you know do that soon so we can have it uh, for a great little holiday episode that would be great thank you 
I'm so excited to hear what everyone has to say. I also think there's a lot of power in just making fun of the weird things people say to yeah, us about our yeah. genders and sexualities. Um, because, you know, it's like, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. <laughs> yeah. Extremely true. Extremely true. Well, while we all contemplate all the fun little voice memo presents you're going to send us, we've got something for you, our usual prides and provocations. Christina, do you want to kick us off? How are you feeling this? Happy to. I'm feeling proud. I have a pride. Um, so I know we've recently had the incredible Mercury Stardust on the show, but I want to ask you too about another TikTok famous home maintenance queer. Um, someone who inspires a lot of feelings in me. Mm-hmm. I think you could call one of them pride, but there's just so much bubbling inside me about them. Um, are you oh. guys familiar with Melissa Dilks Pateras, otherwise known as the laundry lesbian? No. <gasps> but oh, I am so happy. I am intrigued. <laughs> Melissa to you. She is a tattooed butch mom from Uxbridge, Ontario, Jules. Oh. The Canadian really jumps out when she talks. <laughs> um, and she has made a name for herself posting tips about all the things you didn't really know you were doing wrong in your house, specifically mm. about laundry. So like how to fold weird things, how to maintain your dryer, how to get stains out. Um, but she also TikToks about using the dishwasher, cleaning toilets and espresso machines. Um, and I actually have to play you a clip of this one. Um, she talks about caulking, you know, like using caulk, using the right kind of caulk in the right way. Here's a little clip. You're right. It has been a minute since we've done Cock Talk. And if you're new here, welcome to Cock Talk. Let's go over the basics one more time. For starters, I prefer silicone cock. And that's not to discount the other cocks. It's just that I find it does a better job and it lasts longer. And no, it's not a phase. And it's also not that I haven't tried other cocks because I have. I'm blushing a little bit. Um, actually kind of breaking a sweat. Melissa started posting during COVID quarantine, quickly went viral for her sensuous laundry folding. Now she has a million and a half followers on TikTok. She's probably turned hundreds of people gay. Melissa's also out with a new book later this month, A Dirty Guide to a Clean Home. Can't wait to get my hands on that one. So I'm proud of this for two reasons. One, I think butch lesbian sex symbols are really powerful and essential to our culture. And two, feminists have spent generations now trying to end compulsory domestic labor and also have it just recognized and compensated as actual work. This TikTok account or Instagram account for me is not only promoting like a masculine entry point into traditionally feminine coded household tasks like laundry. She's also making visible like all the effort and skill that goes into it. Like doing laundry is not just about like throwing something in a barrel and taking it out. Um, There's actually quite a bit if you're doing it right that you have to know. So um, kudos to Melissa. If you're doing it right. (laughs) Yeah. If you're doing it with the skill of... um, the laundry lesbian. I'm just so proud. I really encourage you guys to follow her. You'll learn a lot. Brian, how are you feeling this month? Okay, so I am. <laughs> it's a slightly convoluted pride uh, because it's about George Santos, of whom I'm not <laughs> proud. Oh, so as wow. you've likely heard by now, George Santos was expelled from Congress after the House Ethics Committee released the results of their investigation into his campaign dealings. And unsurprisingly to anybody that's been following this story, 
He uh, was involved in a great deal, uh, seems to have been involved in a great deal of fraud, misappropriating and misusing funds that were meant for his campaign for personal things like paying down credit card debt uh, and the like. Um, out of this report uh, emerged some some sort of fun details, I guess. He also used the money for a bit of a shopping spree. He went to Sephora for all of his skincare needs. <laughs> yeah, uh, no. And also Hermes for, I m- imagine, some beautiful scarves. Oh, wow. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, maybe maybe the sweaters come from Hermes. I don't know. Yeah. But the great detail that emerged out of all of this was also that some of the money went to OnlyFans subscriptions. Of course. Um, okay, so mm-hmm. I uh, am generally not a big fan of the like George Santos's fun discourse, like you know, campy or whatever. I think he's terrifying and mm-hmm. scary. But if anything good was going to come out of him, it is the fact that sex workers on OnlyFans <laughs> got money, and specifically they got money <laughs> intended for Repu- a Republican campaign. Which yes. I'm, yeah. I'm just yes, going to go totally. on a limb and say that the people making those contributions probably at least would not outwardly support sex workers, even if they probably you know would also watch porn. They mm-hmm. they did not know their money was going to this. I am very glad that that money got rerouted to those sex workers. I don't think we know as of recording. I don't think we know who any of them are yet. I would love to hear from them about their experience of being uh, subscribed to by George Santos. But yes, I am just proud that that money went somewhere productive and good. And you know, if anything good was going to come out of him, it's that some sex workers got paid. So, uh, oh, that's good such job, a guys. good take on this story, Brian. <laughs> Thank you for making this like a oh, silver sure. lining, glass half full moment, and not like a you know corrupt gay monster. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, Jules, what did you have? Well, I'm feeling proud in a pretty selfish way. I have a self pride um, that I promise ripples to being proud of many other people. It doesn't have to, um, but okay. <laughs> it's like a it's like selfish altruism. Um no, I I wanted to to share something that I'm really proud to have been a part of that just came out. Um it's called All the Only Ones. It's a three-part uh series on NPR's uh, documentary series embedded. So it's like a three part podcast um, that I was very privileged to work on for honestly, like I think the last year and a half wow. with the really talented, yeah, journalist Lane Kaplan Levinson. Basically, Lane and I wanted to take some of the most compelling stories that I had put together in my much drier academic book on the history of trans kids and like bring them to life in an audio format. Um, but also think about how to not just make history more accessible, but to to bring trans youth from the past hundred years into like as direct contact as you could with trans kids today. And so Lane came up with this amazing, amazing format where in each episode you meet some some remarkable trans people, young people from as far back as a hundred wow. years ago, hear about their stories brought to life by voice actors, trans voice actors who are reading letters they wrote, you know reading um, different excerpts from archival materials I found on them. And then Lane is also hanging out with um, a young trans person today who maybe shares something kind of in common with the person from the past, and they kind of get to meet one another over the course of each episode. For me, the pride is one of many emotions. I have like had my own sort of 
relationships to some of the 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 kids who of course have never met who I wrote mm-hmm. about in my book and hearing them brought to life like hearing their voices definitely had me crying while I was yeah. listening to this while I was in the car driving places um but mostly I'm just really proud because you know as a historian the work that that I put into my book, like the one group of people for whom it's not accessible is like trans teenagers, right? Like this is a college level or grad school, you know, kind of gate kept book. And so I just feel so proud now that um, trans youth themselves, <laughs> you know, can anywhere you get your podcast mm-hmm. for free, get access to some of this history that properly belongs to them, um, but also their families and loved ones and people who are just hungry f- for meaningful and exciting and thoughtful kind of storytelling about our shared history. So that's All the Only Ones is the name of the series from NPR. And you can get it wherever you get your podcasts if you want to hear more of me. But it's not only me, thankfully. So yeah, uh, yeah I just really, really warm and fuzzy about it. Well, speaking of time travel, uh, we'll be back to talk about The Lavender Scare and the new Showtime series Fellow Travelers right after this break. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right. So Fellow Travelers is the glitzy new Showtime series about the period in the 1950s defined by McCarthyism and the Lavender Scare, a moment when it became U.S. policy to identify and root out homosexuals from the government bureaucracy, since being queer was viewed as being both morally repugnant and as an automatic security risk. If you could be blackmailed by the Soviets for your indecent lifestyle, the thinking went, then you might as well be working for them. The show focuses on the, let's say, complicated relationship between Hawk Fuller, played by icy-eyed Matt Bomer, and Tim Laughlin, played as a sort of jittery nerd type by Jonathan Bailey, and it features appearances from the likes of Roy Cohn, Bobby Kennedy, and Joe McCarthy himself, all in like weird nose prosthetics, we should mention. (laughs) Uh, The general vibe is very Mad Men, but make it DC, uh, and with a fair amount of graphic, though often furtive, gay sex. And it is the um, intimacy coordination, let's say, that I've been seeing praised most about this show. But today I want to talk about all of it. We can talk about the sex, the history, the politics, and especially the daddy issues, because... (laughs) <laughs> Woo, this Woo. has got a lot of daddy issues. They're profound. Uh, profound. Uh, but before we get into all of that, let's listen to a clip. Want to go to the party? To Joe's? I mean, don't get me wrong. He would glom onto you like a jellyfish. So take me. <sighs> and I dress for it. You don't have a date? I'd be with you. This is the real world, Skippy. I'm your boy, right? Hmm? Well, well. And your boy wants to go to the party. How much does he want to go? All right, so before we uh, get into the discussion, I, w- I just wanted to mention that we've only seen the first three episodes. So, you know, 
opinions may change as the series goes on, but that's what we're speaking about today. Um, first off, wanted to get general reactions uh, from y'all. Did this show turn you into a fellow traveler or make you want to inform on everyone involved? <laughs> Uh, so Christina, good. what did you think? I've I've uh really enjoying this show. Mm. Um it I will say um I I'd like historical dramas that I feel like actually teach me a little something. Like, I'm a little bit um dorky in that way. And you know, I knew and know the like broader outlines of the lavender scare and some of the finer points, you know, certainly familiar with Roy Cohn um, and Joe McCarthy, um, which by the way is the name of one of my cousins, which is <laughs> always makes me feel Suspicious. weird. Um, yeah. But I don't feel like I've gotten a lot of sort of first person intimate accounts of what it was like to be gay during that mm. time. Um, so from that respect, I found it really interesting, especially because the two men that it focuses on, or actually three, because there's the journalist yeah, too, yeah. Um, a gay journalist, um, they all have very different relationships to what's going on in the government. I thought it was very um, smart and uh, provided for some rich drama that Tim is like a huge McCarthy fanboy, like a true believer of the threat of communism. Very Catholic. And yeah. super Catholic, yeah. And, you know, has a bit of guilt going on and questioning, like, is he a good person? But also is uh, enthusiastically participating in the gay lifestyle and sort of exploring what it might mean to have a more fully fleshed out gay life, whereas the guy he's having sex with, Hawk, um, which can we just Hawk Hawkins Fuller? That is yeah, name. Yeah. Like, come on, it's like too too much. <laughs> Full on um, name. He is just sort of like stoic about. Doesn't believe in anything. Like, doesn't feel like he has any true allegiance to politics or love or family, and is um, just sort of hardened himself in the three episodes that we've seen so far to the possibilities of a more um, fully drawn out life. I felt like I really enjoyed getting to see how those different personalities conducted themselves within the strictures of this society where you, you know, are always sort of under suspicion. I do think I should address an important question that like the queer community must confront mm. in order to be intellectually honest. Brian, I'd be curious to hear whether this conversation is already going on among gay men. Is Matt Bomer too hot to be a good actor? <laughs> I don't feel like I can believe Oof. him as a character because I just think he looks too mm. perfect. And especially in this character oh, where he's face. like sort of aggressively um, like toppy and yeah. just like super butch and withholding and i don't know it just that character feels too much to me and his name is hawkins fuller right <laughs> but jonathan bailey who plays opposite him i don't think i've seen him in anything i was sort of entranced by the way he plays that character and it's bringing mm. up a lot of emotions with me and i'm excited to see where he goes what did you yeah. think jules mm. 
Well, let me just begin by saying, get <laughs> back, baby. I mean, it has been a fucking mm. dry spell in TV and film for good sex, period. Uh, and just like we're living in this puritanical anti-sex moment in culture. So first of all, I was thoroughly uh, pleased and titillated and enjoyed seeing Actually, not just generic gay sex, too, Mm -hmm. but, like, different kinds of gay sex, uh, gay sex with power dynamics, gay sex that has, like, different meanings that are attached to the story diegetically. Uh, Like, hello, thank you just, like, for this thing that has gone away from our culture coming back. Love it, love it, love it. I thought it was pretty hot, most cases. Um, Yeah, you know, I, I... I feel like it's been a while since I've liked something we've watched. So I went into this feeling like pretty like, well, who knows? I mean, you know, I've always thought there should be um, a TV series about the Lavender Scare. I mean, it's just such a rich cinematic. Mm -hmm. I mean, Cold War paranoia, DC in the 50s, people living double lives. It's just begging for, for television, but also because there is this kind of genre history. Uh, and that's why, you know, right. I know this is based on a novel and it, it makes a lot of sense to me that it switches back and forth into the 1980s because for that generation of gay men, um, but also of lesbians who, you know, were sort of navigating the the lavender scare, whether in DC or more broadly, that version of Cold War kind of pre Stonewall life. Uh, the the arrival of the of the AIDS crisis really led to a lot of kind of reflection on what happened to this cohort that just like in some ways was given like mm. too much history to digest. Uh, and so I, I'm just kind of glad to see these stories on screen because they're so compelling and rich. Uh, and I will say as someone who knows too much about the Lavender Scare, as a historian who spent part of the summer, um, you know, actually boning up on that for various reasons. I mean, it's a pretty rich film, like, like, for the most part. I mean, I don't know, like one question I, I'm certainly chewing over and we're only a few episodes in is like, like, I'm getting a lot out of some of the details and choices they're making and references, but I have no idea if those are even legible at mm. all to people who haven't, like, read obsessively about this. Like, there are little, you know, things that they're showing, particularly um, the class distinctions within the gay world in D.C., which were so huge in the 50s, right? Um, and there are only, there have been relatively few of those moments that I often, that often pull me out of historical gay media where like someone from 2021 suddenly takes over a character like there was like one moment of like it's not who we have sex with it's <laughs> who love, which they love. used but in the like, trailer yeah. too yeah canceled they didn't think like that in the I'm 50s so yeah like yeah yeah like that of course that's gonna happen but it's this is like the minimal amount of that that i've seen in a long time so like at, there are points where the emotional tim character is accidentally becoming like a post yes. obergefell <laughs> gay man but it's not but it's not it's not as bad as i would have expected i guess and there's like so much else going on that i think is really interesting um but but maybe kind of hard to decode if you haven't at least read um like david johnson's really Mm. wonderful book the lavender scare which is a very readable kind of history of this time period that gives you a lot of kind of context for what's going on um and i will say um i just kind of wish bobby kennedy was a little sexier but you know i don't know what that says about me okay one question before we move on since you seem to be highly aware of the historical accuracy part of it and i swear Mm -hmm. i'm not obsessed with just the physicality of these actors but 
Was anyone? Are you like, were gay men that hot were, in the 50s? That ripped. That Everyone was just eating like string beans and no. meatloaf and like they didn't know what vanity muscles were. And yet here they are with like a 2023 <laughs> body type. No, I was. It's so funny you asked that. I was just speaking about this show with my um, older gay historian friend, uh, Charles, mm. Charles Kaiser. And he said, mm. uh, he, <laughs> one thing he said was like, no one, he said abs had not been invented yet in yes. the 50s. Like that no one. Yeah, there was no equinox no in, had, in, in Foggy Bottom. <laughs> Come on. Uh, no one had those bodies. Uh, no. So yes, everyone is, is, is hot, but hot in a very uh, 2023 way. So yeah, <laughs> yeah good question. Christina. Thank you. Brian, what's, <laughs> what's your reaction? I didn't like this as much as you guys did. Um, hmm. I think that the the sex scenes are, are uh, you know, uh, refreshing for sure. And we can talk more about why that is in detail. Getting to sort of bathe in that historical world is also, I think, pretty compelling. It's a beautiful show to watch. And I think it is full of a lot of, you know, sort of Easter eggs and details, Jules. I, I noticed probably fewer than you, but I just can't quite figure out after three episodes, like what it is for exactly like yeah. like it it sort of feels to me like yet another white gay male story where like the investment is in like a lot of the tension is coming from their proximity to power and that being threatened right which is like a real historical thing that happened i understand that i'm not trying to totally like wokeify it or whatever but I, but it just as a matter of fiction, as a matter of, or of entertainment, right? A, 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 as like something to choose to make into a story. What, mm. Why, why are we doing this now? What is, mm. what is the need for, for this particular mm. story to be told right now? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is one. I don't know. I just felt like it was kind of inert and some, like very beautiful, but inert. I also had, a lot of itchiness around the the sort of gender politics between the two romantic leads. Anyway, I'm glad, Christina, that you mentioned the other. There is another lead I should have mentioned in my intro. Jelani Aladdin plays Marcus Hooks, who is a black um, journalist who is gay as well and, and is part of this world. And Mike. My- God is so hot and and so great. And not even look at him directly. Yeah, I was thinking about the main romance, but he's he's as important for sure. So I'm glad that you mentioned him. Um and he actually is offers I think one of the more interesting parts of the show is the entree that he offers into a black uh DC gay sort of underground that is obviously, you know, sort of figured at least is it the most interesting place to go. It's where all the drag queens are and all the like performers and the gender diversity is really located there. Which was true. Which is true, right, exactly. So that is actually very important. And I think, you know, I'm glad that the show, you know, uh, bothered to include that because it could have just been a, a white guy romance. But the sort of sexual dynamics are interesting. I think I have a lot of top fatigue, like mask top fatigue. <laughs> I just don't, I don't, that makes I don't really. Us. That's yeah. actually a privilege, Brian. <laughs> There's a top shortage. Yeah. I mean, I won't say how I identify actually, but I, but I, but I, uh, watching Matt Bomer. <laughs> do that yeah thing it's to too much it should it's be matt much. in that role that's it's too, too much. much yes okay but maybe we should talk about the sex part though like what do you guys feel like differentiates this from let's say red white and royal blue <laughs> oh my god because what I an interesting comparison like there's the power play is just so like viscerally convincing yeah. um and yeah. i feel like it just sort of in that way steps into um a sexual reality that most 
filmmakers or, you know, showrunners are too Mm -hmm. chicken to try. Yes. I mean, I will, I do want to mark this though as part of the genre of like, AIDS cultural production that's reflecting on the pre-Stonewall era with this extremely politically charged, moralized point of view on sex, which like the show structure plays out. The show does flash forward between the 50s to the mid 80s. And and we meet our main characters sort of again there. Well, that's sort of the context in which then we can't help but read the 1950s sex as somehow having causal consequences Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the 80s. Right. And like, that's what I I at least appreciate the effort to take this on as a dynamic, right? Sex is not incidental, right? The actual sex scenes are themselves playing out this relationship between male power, right? um, And literal political power, but also between the 1950s pre-Stonewall and post-Stonewall gay liberation, and then, right, the crisis of, of HIV AIDS. And so it like part of all I think it's meant to do is just stage that but it's like it's it amps up the stakes so high right so you can't help but watch this fucking happening in 1953 and feel like it is causing <laughs> events that happen mm-hmm. later on right and that's like i think you know ultimately that really was like a live wire conversation particularly in the 80s and the 90s there's so much art by gay men that's reflecting on like you know the atomic bomb explodes in the, you know, in, at the end of World War II, and these dudes were secretly fucking, and now they're dying. And like, what does that mean in America? This like decrepit empire, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like it's just I appreciate seeing that taken on. Um, it's nice to see like gay sex like have meaning beyond it's repressed although it's still doing that it's still like they're doing this behind closed doors because they can't do it out in the open and that's bad and so they're not really enjoying it the way they want to but it's also like I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm being too generous to the Matt Bomer performance, but I find it because it's so extreme. Like to me, it's actually the perfect distillation. I I find it kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard for me to stay like turned on by it for very long. Although it's like finding a top who's able to do those things without breaking (laughs) characters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Like it's their personalities because the characters have a very distinct power dynamic. Um, you know, exactly. age, daddy, daddy class, boy, like super, hardcore, like daddy, daddy boy. related. Um, and to see them actually be those characters while they're having sex is it's just like a very um artful uh yeah. relation between those two things, I think, which I think a, yeah. a lot of times sex scenes, I mean, and even if you especially compare it to like a heterosex scene it's like those sorts of power roles are assumed already and so it's just mm, um right, i think in a lot right. of queer sex scenes the the power dynamics are flattened a little bit um yeah in the way they're yeah. portrayed which i just i think there's a lot more diversity to queer sex than often what we get to see on screen for sure. um and yeah. especially in some of the things we've watched and so it's just refreshing to see this done from a point of view like any point of view and showing anything sort of interesting going on in the bedroom really loving this conversation but we have to take a quick break we'll be back right after that Here's how I'm playing with this show, and I'm curious what you two think about this, right? I think 
I don't think the narrative is going to agree with me here. So I'm deliberately reading it differently than I way, the way I think the show internally works, right? Part of what I find so helpful about Matt Bomer's performance is that I think the thing, and this is my broader interest in this time period and in the Lavender Scare, which just to say holds this like kind of like disproportionate place in our imagination as if it's a synecdoche for the repression of gay and Mm. lesbian people writ large in the 50s. And it's not. It absolutely isn't because these are uh, middle, solidly middle class DC bureaucrats who are only there because like basically the New Deal created the civil service and caused all these people to move to Washington, D.C. who didn't have families. And it just like encouraged a lot of gay and lesbian people to show up. And like right wing people as early as the 1930s started to identify the civil service with like the effeminacy of bureaucracy. And they just had it out for the state. Like this is the origin of this kind of right wing hatred of government that we're still living with today. It was already homophobic in the 30s. So in some ways, like the lavender scare isn't the this like incredible kind of like um, explosion of homophobia for homophobia's sake, it very, very, very clearly is part of much broader political strategies that would have been happy to pick any number of other topics like anti-communism, right? It ends up going all in on gay people. But just to say, right, it feels like this cataclysmic event, not to say people's lives weren't ruined, they were ruined, but we're talking about at most a few thousand people um, in DC who were of a certain echelon that wouldn't even mix with the poor and black queer world in DC. That was a huge, huge, huge kind of um, city, like municipal kind of distinction at the time. Which and also like, continued in the 1960s, until, like... Well, DC exactly. Like, still, like, you know, segregated. And, this is the yeah. foundation of like a lot of the fault lines we still actually have in queer community, right? And like in the 60s, the Mattachin Society gets really involved in advocating on behalf of these people and has this sort of pre Stonewall civil rights thing. So, all of that being said, right? Like, I think the show is going to ask this question like, oh, isn't Matt Bomer's character, isn't Hawk basically an unfulfilled, ruined guy Mm. because he was forced to play this game and he played it too well, right? And the way I actually want to read it is like, I'm not sure that that's actually true. I think Bomer represents this actual total congruence of male power and male sexuality. Like there's a reason why he's a top and he just kind of has this nihilistic, I'll fuck anyone because I'm climbing my way up i'm making myself into a self-made man and i get off on the power structure of america and i just like i think part of the the lie that like post stonewall politics i for understandable reasons has propagated about state repression is that somehow like government and power is fundamentally homophobic it's not like that's why like Joseph McCarthy is dogged by gay rumors and Roy Cohn is the biggest gay ever. Yeah. Like, these people are not secret hypocrites. They fully see their power and their sexuality as workable mm-hmm. to the point where they're willing to persecute other gay people without fearing wrongly, yeah. of course, that the, the, the accusations ever be turned back on them. And so I kind of like that Bomer's like performance is a little too extreme because to me it dramatizes like ultimately why I think our kind of nostalgic memory about the Lavender Scare is kind of wrong, that like some gay men, if they were white, 
Right. And we're masculine. We're perfectly capable of getting along in the typical power structures of America and still are. Um, it's just that like there's no unity in the gay community. Some people do get targeted by homophobia. Some people's lives are run by, you know, anti-black racial segregation, you know, or some people are drag queens get picked up that way, right? Like there are these interesting fault lines. And I think the show is unwittingly showing them to us because it's infested in accuracy, but it it doesn't like I just don't think it knows. Oh my God, Joel, I don't know. Is this is me being really so, academic. Such a smart analysis of that yeah, Bomer character. And it, I mean, hmm. watching the show and especially Roy Cohn um, and the way he conducts himself, mm. it just made me think like these men also feel like being gay is the manliest thing you can do. And like, yeah, be- right. it's like just, a, yeah, almost a, it's not like, oh, <laughs> this is like the, a feminine part of my it's like a gender subversion it's actually me enacting my male power in the manliest possible way like i only fuck men you know yeah Um, yeah i mean this isn't so long after the time of like the fairy you know like actual community distinctions like Mm -hmm. along these lines right about femininity and masculinity and if you were a masculine top you were just a man right it didn't it didn't really matter that much all right well listeners as always, please let us know what you think about fellow travelers. Maybe we will check in. Maybe at there the will end. be a, a provocation or something. Or a yeah, yeah. We'll, right. we'll keep an eye on it. I'm compelled by our discussion to continue watching, I think. Let us know what you think. Uh, Outwardpodcast.com. Fellow Travelers is rolling out now weekly on Showtime and various streaming services. So definitely check it out. That's about all the time we have for this month. But before we go, we have a few updates to your gay agenda. Jules, what are you bringing to us? Well, I have, I feel like we're just like chock full of great cultural recommendations this episode. Um, but I want to recommend one more thing. Uh, maybe, maybe actually a great holiday gift or a gift to yourself, something to read. Um, the really just preternaturally talented uh, activist, writer, journalist Raquel Willis has a book out, a really beautiful looking memoir about her own life and her own pretty important role in organizing for Black trans liberation, especially over the past couple of years. You may have seen, you know, some pretty powerful footage of her from a major, major, major march and rally in Brooklyn in 2020. But anyways, Raquel is just like someone you always want to be hearing from. She's she's smart, she's gorgeous, she's witty, she's insightful. And her new book, uh, her memoir, The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation, um, is just just come out from Macmillan. I haven't had the chance to read it yet, uh, yeah. but I've just been seeing like very glitzy, glamorous photos of book launches like on my Instagram <laughs> feed. I saw like, oh, hey, it's Laverne and Raquel looking gorgeous at the Strand. And so that was my little <laughs> reminder that I need to go pick that book up and maybe read it over the holiday break. But just want to recommend it because you know it's going to be good um, and, and very meaningful. And I'm, I don't know, one of those books that will probably help define the genre. So highly, highly recommend. That sounds great. Brian, what about you? Well, uh, funny you should ask that, Christina. I want to recommend uh, my excellent colleague, Christina Carterucci's (gasps) recent piece in Slate. uh, The headline is, Your Kid is Trans, You Live in Texas, There Are No Good Options. Um, The headline kind of says it all, but of course, this is a look at what the state's crackdown on trans healthcare has done to trans kids and their families. There And it really makes the stakes uh, of these gend up anti-trans campaigns just very clear. One of the subjects Christina writes about is a kid named Zetter. 
Zetter is one of thousands of kids and teens throughout the U.S. who are suffering the effects of the targeted attack on one of the most vulnerable and marginalized groups in the country. Their parents are now faced with the choice. If they want their children to have access to essential, physician-recommended medical care, they must uproot their lives and plot out a series of convoluted steps to access care across state lines. In the midst of this GOP-manufactured crisis, advocates are trying to find ways to mitigate the damage. In some cases, they're looking to the map that has been sketched out by activists to help pregnant people get abortions, another form of vital health care that has been abruptly restricted in recent years. But it's becoming clear that the restrictions on trans health care are creating a maze unto itself. So, you know, it's a major problem that's happening. People's lives are getting just totally destroyed by this. And Christina does a wonderful job of reporting about it and letting us know what's going on. So do yourself a favor and check that out. It's called Your Kid is Trans. You live in Texas. There are no good options. And it is in Slate. Yeah, thank you for well, thank you for writing about like, also, I feel like sometimes we get the impression that it's like either the law says no, or the law says yes. And actually, most people's lives are caught somewhere in the middle, regardless of what the law says. And so I just feel like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I was like so hooked on every word, but part of it is just because it's so important to know like what are actually mm-hmm. people going through right now. It's not mm-hmm. really what laws prescribe, like people's real everyday struggle is just, yeah, no, really, really, really. Yeah. And so just vital. talking to Zetter's mother, who was very open and affirming and excited when Zetter came out, but really didn't know how to be a parent to a trans kid, mm-hmm. like, and has just been trying over the past several years, like, almost to create her own little playbook because there's very few resources available. There's more now, but she just from the very beginning felt like kind of plotting her way through the dark. Mm. And every time the law changes, which in a lot of states, like you said, it's not black and white. It's like it was passed, then it was blocked, then this is available, but this isn't. And sometimes you can go across state lines, but then they turn you away. And it's all just a lot more convoluted than like those color coded maps about like it's banned here. It's not banned here would even have you believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So, Christina, what do you have for the gadget? I want to recommend it's actually another podcast. It's an episode of a podcast called Patented History of Inventions. Um, <laughs> the episode itself is called Pride Flag Birth of a Ooh. Rainbow. Um, <laughs> and it's about how the rainbow flag came to be a symbol of the queer community. I think it's a story a lot of people probably know. It was created by Gilbert Baker in 1978. He was tasked by Harvey Milk and others with creating a new symbol for LGBTQ people for Gay Freedom Day that year. Gilbert Baker, by the way, henceforth went by the drag name Busty Ross. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So good. Oh, yeah. Also a radical fairy. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So the episode does a really good job of taking that somewhat familiar story, which is also now the subject of a children's book, and zooming out to look at what does it mean to have a flag and why does a group of people need a symbol like this? This episode in particular made me think about how essential like a shared visual language can be in creating a sense Mm. of a shared movement. The podcast is called Patented History of Inventions, and the episode is Pride Flag, Birth of a Rainbow. So I found this podcast episode while I was researching for this new project I'm doing. It's not on the rainbow flag, but another gay topic. Um, So starting next month, I'm actually going to be taking some time away from Outward to focus on this other thing I'm doing. I know. Um, It's a secret right now, but it'll be announced sometime in December. Um, It's very gay, and I'm hoping that maybe you guys can mention it on the podcast at some point to let our listeners know where I am and what (laughs) I'm doing. I'll be gone until June, but I'll be back just in time to 
you know, insert myself into whatever discourse about rainbow capitalism and fetish gear at the Pride Festival is going on oh, at that yeah. point. <laughs> and I'm still going to be getting our listener emails. So I'll be able to see if you guys say anything salty about me while I'm gone. But I'm going to miss you, too. Oh, we're yeah. going to miss you, too, Christina. Yeah, but-, but glad you're working on secret yeah, secret yeah. gay project. Uh, <laughs> from what I from what I have heard through the grapevine, it's pretty amazing. I know the secret, and it's yeah, it is amazing. And Christina is the perfect person yeah. to do it. It's going to be so great. So it is mm-hmm. worth the absence and our pain briefly for Thank you to you. do that. Can't wait. That's it for this week. Please send us your feedback. We love to hear it. Uh, we also love getting your topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or on Facebook or x at slate outward um and just a reminder by joining slate plus you could get ad-free podcasts extra segments on shows like the waves and working and you would never hit a paywall on the slate site so you might want to sign up to learn more go to slate.com slash outward plus our show was produced by palace shaw if you like outward can subscribe in your podcast app we would love if you told your friends about it and rate and review the show so other people can find it this was fun bye brian bye christina bye jules bye christina stay gay everyone <laughs>